And you're listening to CITR Radio, FM 102, Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. And it's time right now for the Nardwar, the Human Serviette Radio Show. And who do we have in the studio right now? Who are you? My name is Aaron Chapman. Who are you, A.O.? <laughs> Please explain. A.O. Chapman. <laughs> my, my, my name, uh, A.O. When you say A.O., I go all the way back to early 1990 CITR years when I used to write under the name A.O. Chapman uh, for Discorder and things like that. But I'm the author of a new book uh, called Live at the Commodore about the history of the Commodore Ballroom. Currently number four in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, British Columbia. (laughs) Yes, number four in the book book charts. Pardon me. And we just heard A.O. Chapman. What did we just hear right there? Your theme song. Every time I come on the show, we play that song, and it is the nipple erectors uh, all the time in the world. Shane McGowan's... A band before the Pogues. And uh, yeah, we, it's tradition that we play it every time I'm on the show. A band that did play the Commodore without Shane. They played with Shane, the Pogues, and, and, and without. Uh, when, uh, when Joe Strummer sang with the band uh, in the early 90s. And then uh, and Spider Stacy uh, came back and sang as well with them. So. And you later partied with them at the Town Pump. Uh, not, no, no, I, I, I didn't. No, they came back to the railway uh, after one show. Uh, but uh, I missed that. I wasn't there for it. I have met them since then. I did get to know, but I missed out that night. I can't can't confess to being there that night. And you are A.O. Chapman, <laughs> author of Live at the Commodore. A.O., you have the best voice in radio. You used to say that. You, you tell me that, you know, yeah. A.O., the best voice in radio. <laughs> Even called you on stage in my band, of Operator, yes. to do a song. That was the night with Seaweed and the Hanson Brothers out at the West Van Community Center, was it not? In right, the, yeah. I'm and it was sure. snowing, and I think it was the night Nico Case met the Hanson Brothers. Yeah. And then you later were on tour Nico Case, yes, I you? did. Yeah, Nico and our pals. And they all went back to West Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. I mean, and A.O. Chapman, you also, for people that have might have listened to the Nardwater Human Survey Radio Show over the years, might have heard you and me interviewing a guy called Duncan. Oh, yes. I, I see him every once in a while. He's wearing a pith hat, like a, like a safari, you know. Uh, and, uh, and Better than the full millet with he, the bow. Exactly that he was in. He's, he's, he's fallen in hard times, maybe. And he was a gentleman that we ran into at the that's, right? That's right. And that's on one of your videos is on one of your... Uh, I want to say cassettes, but I'm going to date myself by saying how long. Is that on DVD? Is no, it isn't. It's an exclusive on cassette. You're exactly right, A.O. Yeah. <laughs> Chapman. I know you, A.O. Chapman. Hugh Dillon. Yes, a distant cousin. Stone. Yes, that's Copy right. of a book. Or your last book. Did he see your last book at all? Like, I, for family. I, I have no, uh, I have no uh, way of uh, getting it. I see him when he comes into town. And I say, uh, once, it, it, I don't know if you remember, we met before, and this and that, and so-and-so, uncle this, and blah, blah, blah. And then we you go, oh, yeah, of course, you know, blah, 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 you know, so. Um, yes. Do you give your book out a lot for Christmas, or your books? Now you have two books we hear to Aaron Chapman, author of Live at the Commodore and Liquor, Lust, and the Law, about the penthouse. Do you give those out at Christmas? Did you give out the penthouse book at Christmas? There's a scene in Scrooge with Bill Murray where they go. the secretary is going through him with the, shop, with the Christmas shopping list. And, he, and she's reading out names, and people either get a towel or a VCR. Of course, the, you have to understand, that's when they made the movie with VCR. I guess now it would be a DVD player. So now I get to go through my list, and I will say, a penthouse book, uh, a, a Commodore book. Pe- Commodore book, Commodore book, penthouse book, Commodore book. You know, that's how I do my Christmas shopping from now on. They all get a book of mine. A.O. Chapman, get in the bed. Oh, I've yes. been talking to you about writing a book, get in the bed. Is that next? Because you have your book, <laughs> Liquor, Lust, and the Law. You've had Live at the Commodore. I'm sure a lot of people ask you, what's next? I, you know, I, what book is next? And I say, get in the bed. What was get in the bed about? Well, I came on. I was uh, I was in a band called The Real Mackenzies in the nineties, and I I took rather copious uh, tour diaries, uh, and I read them out on, on on your show one time. I think I think I read a couple excerpts, and you thought they were so good. And and of course, there's 
Henry Rollins was getting the van, you said you should call this getting the bed because the amount of uh, filth. filth. There was a lot of filth in the book. And you would often, when right? I interview somebody, you would run in because you were hanging out at CIT and you go, right. you know, this guy is supposed to be sexy? We want filth. We want filth. <laughs> like, you were a great judge of filth, aren't you, A.O. <laughs> Chapman? Yeah, I guess I was. Yes. Kind, were, of you, kind of you to say so. So would there be get in the bed next, perhaps? Maybe. Well, you know, the, the real McKenzie story is now being done by Chris Walter. That's the subject of his uh, next uh, rock uh, bio book. So he's doing that, and he, and he did interviews with all the old Mackenzies like me. And So I guess it's gonna, I told him some stories. I guess there's going to be Does some stuff Does he tell the story about the tree fort? For old time's sake, <laughs> can we tell him the tree fort story? That's in, uh, if you go back to probably 1992 Discord uh, issues, you'll find that story in there, which was a story that I wrote about walking down the street one day and seeing a, uh, you don't, this doesn't happen anymore because everything's online. But I saw a, a sort of a dirty, beaten-up, gravel-hit uh, uh, porn magazine lying on the street. And it was just like, where did this come from? You know, like, the, and the discovery of that, you know, uh, was sort of... It used, to, it used to happen to every once in a while. When somebody found that out, the whole neighborhood, you know, quickly heard about it. You know, you, you told your buddies, guess what I found? I don't you know. And you'd sort of, you know, when you're of a certain age, and you, you've, this is a mysterious world to you and whatnot. And I grabbed the thing, and I was, and I was sort of looking around with it, and, I, and there was a treehouse... A kid's treehouse there, and I threw, I threw it like, an, and I made a perfect basketball shot. I'm, I'm not, a, never played basketball in my life. Perfect, and it went right, didn't touch the net. Went right in through the window and landed in that kid's treehouse. And I, and I probably irreparably altered him. But, but the, but the humor piece, it was about that in the, in the Discord way back when. Kind of, a, kind of a, a, a sick joke. I oh, sure leave. Sure leave. What's, what's that? Oh, there was some. What is sure leave? Sure leave. There was something. <laughs> Sure, leave. <laughs> I don't know. That sounds like something you might have written about. Oh, well, there was a, there was a town pants, uh, uh, you know, record, uh, you know, or like, called that. So maybe they were thinking of that. That might played, have been it. Because yes. I played in the town pants for the over town pants. That's what I was going to say. Played the, those guys over the town pants. We yes, have to give them some acknowledgement. Oh, sure, sure, yeah, yeah. I saw the guys the other night. They came down to the book launch at the Commodore the other evening. Ao licked the pole. Licked the pole. Oh my! Well, it's funny you mention uh, licked the pole because Rebecca R. From Lick the Pole is getting uh, getting hitched this weekend uh, here in Vancouver, and and because I think there were some uh, issues with family not being able to be there, she wants me to give her away uh, at the wedding, and I'm trying. I'm it's it sort of I found out about it a bit late, and I'm just trying to shuffle my schedule now because I I want to see if I can get down there and, and uh, you know give her a hand or give her hand away I suppose in this case, uh, but yeah she's doing well yeah beautiful as ever, and you have a great wedding gift to give her live at the Commodore, <laughs> and we're speaking here too. A.O. Chapman, Aaron Chapman, author of Live at the Commodore, a book all about the history. Is it the history of the Commodore? It is the history of the Commodore Ballroom, and the book goes all the way back to Vancouver in the 1920s. A.O. Chapman, Red Hot Video. You once came on the Nardware to yeah. Great Radio Show, and we're going to name names. Name names. Because you worked at Red Hot Video. I worked there for, th I worked there for three months in, uh, when was it now? It was, this would have been 98, I suppose. Uh, I was between bands, and I, I thought, man, I'm going to get a job, man. I, I'm not, and they're going to look at me. I'm a university-educated student. They're going to laugh at me when I go into the welfare office asking for a handout. And I thought, i got to get the first job. I'm gonna take, i got to take the first job I, I can get. And a buddy of mine uh, called me up and said, hey, man, I heard you're looking for work. I'm leaving my job for three months. I'm going away for it. Take mine, and it'll be great. It'll tide you over till you get back. I said, sure. I put the phone down, and then I thought, wait a minute. Like uh, Paul, there he doesn't work in a he doesn't work in a bookstore, does he? I I, th I thought he worked in a bookstore or a video store or something like something like this, you know. And it, yes, it was a video store. Turned out to be Red Hot Video. So I worked I worked uh, graveyard shift from midnight to late in the morning uh, there, which was very quiet. A lot of times when people would come in, but then other times, uh, right usually around two o'clock when the bars let out, certain people would come in. There were certain people from the media, from well known actors. 
of television actors that would come in. And it was always sort of awkward, you know, like, uh, you know, you just sort of be affable as any sort of cashier would, but it, you couldn't help but recognize, you know, who it was. And it was, yeah, that was, I, I should, there's probably some stories in there. Because that could be the next book Maybe. where you name names. Name the names. I think you actually name, name the names. names. People have to check the Nardwarta Human Serviette radio show archives to find out those names. But yeah. I think those names might be there. Might be, might I think we might have named a couple. Yeah, sure. And A.O. Chapman Cup of Soup, Shit in a Cistern. <laughs> Top that. That was an amazing story that probably Chris Walter maybe will not include. I don't know if he will because he, uh, you know, the, the, he's got to boil the story down to the details. But that was a prank we pulled in the um, in Portland. No, it was in Eugene. Pardon me. In, the, in Real Mackenzie's days, we took the. There was a. There's a long preamble of this, but there was a reason why we wanted to prank the homeowner, or at least I did. And I took the the you know the, there's a water pick you know the water pick shower uh, head. I I dismantled that and I poured in. Uh, like a cup of soup, like a beef bovril cup of soup. I put a bunch of it in there. So when you turn it on, immediately the shower, the hot water would hit it, and the whole shower would come out brown, smelling like soup, and you'd be aghast at what, you know. And this, it was, we, we did this, and I, know, I never saw the reaction of the people. That was the, you want to see the reaction. A, a joke, a practical joke is only a great joke if you're off in the corner seeing somebody do it, seeing the reaction to it. And uh, and then, and then uh, yes, there was some other, other things going on. Shit, this is <laughs> <laughs> because you figured that people couldn't tell where the smell is coming from. Well, you, you know the toilet tank, you can lift the lid, that heavy porcelain lid. And uh, I dropped the kids off at the pool in the cistern and then put the lid back on. So when you flushed, it wouldn't get cleaner, it would get dirtier. And all this filth prepared you That's to write you, the book. This is the stuff we, if, kids, if you're listening to the show, this is the stuff we used to do in rock bands. I know bands show up today and most venues and they ask immediately where, you know, for the Wi-Fi password or where the veggie uh, restaurant is or where they can get a vegan breakfast. This is not what we cared about in the 90s. We were into this sort of behavior. And this propelled you to write the book about the Penthouse Cabaret when you were last <laughs> in an Ardwater Human Service. That's right. That's the last time we were Liquor, right. lust, and the law. And now you're here on the Nardwater Human Serviette Radio Show. Congratulations, A.O. Chapman, with Live at the Commodore, brand new book. That's it. Thank you, Sinra. Thank you, Sinra. Oh, oh Sinara, yes, from uh, Arsenal Sinra. Press. Thank you, Sinara. Arsenal, I put up by Arsenal Press, available in bookstores everywhere. All about the Commodore Ballroom. So the whole book is about the Commodore. What is the Commodore Ballroom, for people that don't know? It's uh, one of the best live music venues in North America. It roundly considered that. It's got a history going back to uh, 1930 when it opened, and, uh, you know, the real sort of rock and roll history of it takes place really sort of in the late 60s onward when Drew Burns, the old proprietor, took over and you had a wave of bands, you know, all the, you know, sort of great touring punk bands that came through um, and, and sometimes, in many ways, some, you know, often surreal watermark ones like The Clash playing there January 31st, 1979 uh, with the Dish Rags uh, opening and Bo Diddley um, and uh, all sorts of other shows, The Police, U2, all these other big bands, but all sorts of smaller bands and local bands that, that got a opening spot uh, and whatnot, or, or big enough local bands that were huge enough to fill that place uh, and whatnot. So almost everybody you've ever thought of, or, or 99% of your record collection probably has played the Commodore Ballroom. And you wrote this book about the Commodore. Were there any other books written about any other venues that you modeled it after? Are there any other books written about Canadian venues? I don't, you know, there's not, uh, I don't think so. That's an interesting question. I, you know, I, I saw the, um, the uh, Austin City Limits book, um, which was sort of a photo essay book in, the, in terms of, but it didn't really get into, that was more, for, more sort of a photography sort of showcase of the artists that had done Austin City Limits. I don't know necessarily of another book like this that that certainly any canadian book because there's less 
so many of these so many of the venues of the great sort of rock and roll venues that uh, even if you've never gone to them they're gone now from cbgb's to you know some of those old great british clubs um or they're turned into something else now you know the in, in different different things so the fact that the concert, especially here in Vancouver, where we've done a you know a very good job of uh, getting rid of old uh, concert venues and old nightclubs, and they've disappeared. Um, the fact that the Commodore is still there, 85, 85 years later almost, is is quite remarkable, especially in this city. What happened to James Brown's pants? That's the most important question out of this book <laughs> after I've read it. What happened to James Brown's pants? Could you explain, please? James Brown did, did uh, was at the Commodore a number of times, but there's a famous show where he went on uh, quite late. Uh, apparently he was only of the belief that he had to do one show and did not understand that he actually had to do two shows that night. So he, he delayed the set until it was almost up and bumping up against the next show that evening and finally went on um, and then wouldn't do the next set until someone got him some booger sugar uh, and... Uh, and then you know played and danced till three four in the morning like it was they had to close the doors and sort of let people out as they wanted to get out or people had to leave saying I can't stay I got to go to work tomorrow you know uh, and then he left his pants behind which were draped over a, a chair in Drew Burns's office for forever uh, I guess Drew sort of thought he's well he's going to come back and get him eventually you know and they just sort of sat off to the side I mean anybody that remembers going into of a certain age that were knew Drew and 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 came to the Commodore in that period remembers what his office was like which as Grant Lawrence mentioned the other night it was sort of the ultimate kind of man cave of uh, of something and when you've got when you got invited into his office it was like Johnny Carson waving you over to the couch uh, after your segment you know and um, and he would uh, he had all this sort of memorabilia on his walls and just off the corner and and things like this you know there's a photo of it in the book uh, his office so what happened to the pants because Drew eventually left the Commodore Drew so what was, happened to the pants and, I, and that is one of the unanswered questions we're still trying to get to the bottom of what happened to those pair of pants and we're speaking here to Aaron Chaman Ale Chaman author of Live at the Commodore a brand new book <laughs> out there available in stores now in stores now all bookstores have it page 80 of the book if you could open up the page 80 sure, yeah, of the see. book Live at the Commodore by Aaron Chapman. What do you see on page 80? Oh, is that, uh, that's uh, Wimpy Roy, Brian Goble of the Subhumans. Yes, Wimpy Roy of the Subhumans. And now I quote here from a local fanzine, not your book. This okay. is a fanzine yeah. from the 1980s. And this is the Subhumans right. talking about the Commodore Ballroom. Yeah. Wimpy, we played with the jam at the Commodore. Really? Did you in Vancouver? The Commodore, yeah. Is that right? How did it go? That was the last gig that we played there. We're banned from the Commodore now. Yeah? Wimpy. No. We played pretty good, actually. Like, people thought we were better than the jam in a lot of cases. And then also, the jam refused to let us backstage after we finished playing, right? Because we never had any communication with them whatsoever. You didn't talk to them at all. We all got pissed off and a lot of punks got beat up that night. I remember Shithead was sitting there on the stairs and got thrown out of the Commodore and stuff like that. It worked out, you know. Everybody was pissed off at the jam because they were such assholes and stuff. Mike, and we insulted the Commodore and they never let us play there since. <laughs> so who needs them? I think that's the last time we played there. 
fucking periscope. Periscope shit. That's horrible. Fucking leeches, says Mary Wimpy. Yeah, Norm Petty has never really done any, any justice. He owes us a gig somewhere, somewhere, sometime. He's going to book us into the closet at blah, blah, blah. So what was going on here in this little <coughs> thing that I'm reading? Out? That's, inter- that's interesting to hear. I think there's a couple things going on there. First off, you have to understand when punk first This is hit- the subhumans. People don't know. The Vancouver, the legendary, legendary subhumans. And I will say, I know, <clears throat> I know uh, Wimpy Roy has graced that stage uh, since uh, then, at least himself. I'm not sure if the subhumans had. I'd have to check the show archives on the Commodore Ballroom website to check that. But you have to understand, first, when punk first hit, I mean, we sort of live with punk rock today like any other genre of music, and there's nothing really sort of threatening or special about it. But back then, late 70s, early 80s, people just did not know how to deal with it. I mean, you, you know, you, you've, it's, 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 uh, it was a complete shock. I mean, I have the story in the book about when the Ramones played the Commodore in 1977 uh, there for their first time here and and the, you could you could tell that the even the people who worked there were not ready to deal with uh, with what everything that entailed um, so I think there were there's there, listen there's numerous times especially when the bouncers that were there who were more used to dealing with sort of throwing out some of the rough and tumble guys from the East End who used to come down for like Johnny Winter and George Thurgood saw like a bunch of punks moshing and thought, these guys are fighting, I'm throwing them out, and grabbed them and tossed these guys down the stairs. There was a, there was a real sort of uh, war going on there at some of these shows. So I think we're getting a little bit of that. We're getting a little bit of the shock of the management uh, dealing with uh, uh, the punk. But you mentioned Norman Perry there, who began Periscope. I'll tell one story about that. It's not in the book. That somebody, I believe it was, I, I, I can't, I'm trying to remember his, <clears throat> my memory now in, in who it was, but they were out in New York, uh, on tour there and eating in a diner after a show and they were talking about um, not getting paid uh, for a show they had done in Vancouver, a Periscope show. When Norman Perry himself walked in and they couldn't believe it, like we were telling this anecdote and then there's the guy and, uh, you know, they were sort of took the opportunity to say, hey, Norman, we were, geez, we were just talking about a show. Like uh, they were just sort of paying their bill up, you know, like, or they were just, you know, sort of winding up their meal and happened to say, we never got paid for that show at the Commodore back in 1981 or whatever, and I and I Norman uh, said how much was uh, how much didn't you didn't get to Ian or Ian Noble or whoever one of these guys that, like you didn't pay what happened like tried to get the story and said how much was your meal, paid the meal and then paid him the 250 bucks he was still out right on the spot, so, you know a good guy I, mean, I don't know what happened I don't know the circumstances of that story or what happened with this or necessarily the subhumans one, but again that you know and we get into the we get into the book really the how uh, you know how volatile. The uh, punk rock scene was when it showed up at a at a concert venue that wasn't ready to deal with it at the time. I think they did actually play the Commodore after that. I'm sure I they checked did. the archives, and there's amazing archives too at the CommodoreBallroom.com. Uh, that's right. Yeah, you can check all the shows that happened. Yeah, and I was Commodore. one of the I was one of the people that worked on the archive. And well. again, we're speaking here to Aaron Chapman, author of Live at the Commodore. Where the hell did the Commodore get their bouncers? Like, they were such scary dudes, especially oh, yeah. in the 80s. <laughs> well, everybody remembers Blackie, the, uh, the one uh, uh, guy there, the security guard there, the doorman that uh, used to uh, be involved in something called uh, Commodore Airlines. And that's when you were taken and sort of thrown down the stairs. Uh, there was basically. a first and a second class there was first of the second. Commodore Airlines. First class was when you went out the front door because that was carpet. Second class was... When you were thrown out. Literally thrown. I'm surprised people's necks weren't broken on a nightly basis then because that's what... And, and I interviewed Blackie for the book. He's, uh, he's alive and well and, uh, and, and somewhat of a bashful guy. Now, I can, I can barely imagine him doing it because I didn't... Uh, but this back up a yes. sec. Commodore Airlines, front steps, you get thrown out, is first class. That's first class. Back steps, back entrance. Not carpeted. Is wood. 
second class. That's and second class. People were actually thrown, weren't they? People, like, people actually, were actually... They'd people, get Aaron and they would hit the stairs? They would, yeah. Or would it be straight down? I, it, when I, you I, were thrown out, what <laughs> happened? <laughs> I know Grant Lawrence was thrown out. He told the story the other night at the Commodore, actually. I never was. I, 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 remember, uh, I remember those guys. They were all sort of rough and tumble uh, big guys, I think, from I hated their shirts. East. They had these weird shirts. Some of the white shirts are like... The, the shirts yeah, really yeah. scared me. They're shirts. I was kicked out the really? night that Def Leppard played three gigs in three different continents. Oh, you were? Yeah, I think they played like Europe, then they played, they played North America. Yeah. Or, in London, Morocco, and, and Vancouver, I think, yeah. Something like that. And yeah. we were the third, or it might have gone to Japan or some yeah, other thing. Yeah, Tokyo, I, London, yeah, Morocco. Something like that. Yeah. But I was kicked out that night, and then somebody later said, hey, man, they were doing you a favor. Yeah. You got kicked out of Def Lab. What the <laughs> hell were you doing there? <laughs> Anyways, but I was trying to do an interview, but it was quite scary. I didn't get the Commodore Airlines, because I just, like, wimply, wimply, kind of scruggled my way there, out of there's, it. There's, there's, people, there's, there's two kind of people in Vancouver. There's the people that have been thrown out by the old bouncers of the Commodore, remember it, and, and think they were... They were idiots and there's other people that said hey i never had a problem with them you know they were fine with me so it's interesting to hear there's two sort of sides to every every story on that one. what's interesting about blackie you mentioned in your book yes live at the commodore speaking here to aaron chapman anybody have any commodore memories 604-822-247 604-ubc citr is that blackie in the book says he's scared of the commodore now not the commodore itself but the area outside of it well he talked you know i asked him in the you know in our interview like yeah, would you you know and he says he doesn't really come downtown now. Now it's, uh, you know, he, he has the complaint that uh, many people in Vancouver do that it's just a bunch of 19-year-olds getting drunk for the first time down in Granville Street. And Granville Street has that stigma, unfortunately, now. Even though there's still places like the Orpheum that have concerts and, and of course, the Commodore, and even the venue and other places, there's like a live music thing. But I think it's, it, it's the, the 900 block of Granville, which has, you know, of course, the Roxy and the Granville Room and Caprice and all these other, those bars on it, Sort of gets the whole street gets tarred with that same brush, you know. And and uh, there's there used to be a bit more of a mix of ages and a bit more of a mix of people on Granville Street, and now it's kind of been one thing. I think it's getting better, but it's got a ways to go. For sneaking into the Commodore Ballroom, how have people snuck in? I know Grant Lawrence, who you mentioned earlier, he would sneak in by just getting there at soundcheck. <laughs> like, he, he wants to see Nirvana, he just got super early and just wait. Yeah. Because it was easy just to wait at the table. Same yeah. thing for, like, the cramps, etc. Just get there super early. How have people snuck into the Commodore? Almost everybody I interviewed, I was shocked because I waited till I was of legal age to get into the Commodore. That's what I was wondering because, yeah. quote, Aaron has been going to shows at the Commodore since he was 19. Yeah. Does anybody go, okay, he's a square, <laughs> we're not reading the book. They, they should, they have every right to call me that because I just, I, I didn't have, uh, I have an older brother, but he's much older than me and I didn't have, you know, any, I, he doesn't necessarily look so much like me, so I didn't ha couldn't use his ID to get in and I just didn't have any access to fake ID that I could sneak in or, or, or just walk in at soundcheck. I didn't, I was just dumb and I didn't know what, uh, how you could do it. So I missed tons of shows that I would have liked to have seen maybe a year before I was, you know, in my 17, 18, you know, that time that a bunch of shows coming through. But a lot of people sort of snuck in, like you say, snuck in at soundcheck, snuck in through the back, or walked in with some people that were older than them and just tried to make it look like that they were with them. Uh, so there's a litany. Almost everybody has a story of sneaking into the comedy. And Gunnar, he snuck into places when he was younger, too. Like well, this, that's a funny line that you would draw then, exactly, because that's what he was doing. So it's okay for us to talk about sneaking into the club because the owner snuck into clubs, <laughs> You right? got it, you got it. He cave. Yeah, the, sure, yeah, those, those places back then. And some, sometimes he would bring a trumpet case, an empty trumpet case with him, so the doorman would think he's part of the band or whatnot. I, I'm surprised more people don't try that trick today. How about favors to backstage in the book? I didn't really see backstage any off-the-record stuff. Was, was anything like going on? 
I, you know, I interviewed uh, uh, Greg from Blue Rodeo, and there was a meth lab operating in the back of the Commodore next to one of the dressing rooms because uh, I, uh, biker guys, that were minging around back there. Now, it, whether or not there was somebody doing drugs out of the back of that space back in the early 19, back, back in the 80s or something like that, I don't know. Only some people sneaking back in to use the bathroom and maybe do their thing and then leave. So there was a, there was a, a, a bit of a sort of a circus going back in there. And maybe that's why the Commodore closed in 96. It couldn't continue like that in a, in a weird way. You know, it, it's important to remember that, that the Commodore did close. Then it was vacant in for three years in, in uh, between 96 and 99. And, and it really... The, the 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 result of that is is probably you know that sort of ended that scene that was going downhill at the Commodore. You saw some of those people in the backstage, but it also more dramatically caused you know a lot of tourists skip by Vancouver between those years. They just they would come up to sort of San Francisco, Portland, Seattle, and they wouldn't come to Vancouver because there wasn't really a proper place to play. Uh, in the wake of that, Richards on Richards probably took off and sort of had a new life on himself, and you suddenly started seeing No Means No at Richards on Richards, which would have been unthinkable, you know, of just a few years earlier when the place was considered a yuppie palace, which, uh, you know, so it, it, the, the, the lack of having the Commodore there really sort of affected the city in those three years. In a way, though, it almost helped the city, because remember Paul Mose, who ran the, cru- ran the Cruel Elephant in sure. British Columbia, Canada, he was booking gigs with no effects at the Commodore. Mm-hmm. The Commodore closed. He had to find somewhere to put no, no effects, so he opened up the Croatian Cultural Center. Sure. He was the first gig, so if the Commodore hadn't closed, the Croatian Cultural Center wouldn't have started up. So, in fact, it was actually good. Well, was it good or, 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 or should we have... For had, a bigger had, venue, because it had an all-ages big it, venue. It had it all, yeah. And, and for all-ages, it was for, good. For, definitely for all-ages, you're right. I think you're right in the money. And I, and I know that the, the Commodore management, would I think, would like to do more all-ages stuff within the Commodore, but the way that the BC licensing... Uh, liquor licensing thing it doesn't allow them to do as many as they would like to. They would they would love to do. I remember talking with uh, Alex Viscasil there, who's the uh, uh, buyer talent buyer there now, and he was he's, he would love to do more all of this stuff. It's the licensing is the problem that doesn't allow them to do it. A.O. Chapman live here on the Nardwater Human Serviette Radio Show, author of the book Live at the Commodore. The intro of your book is incredible. It really sets the scene. <laughs> Champagne Charlie's gets mentioned. <laughs> Could you explain about that? Champagne Charlie's, the sugar refinery. Like, you set the scene walking up Granville, That's don't it. you? Exactly. Champagne Charlie's is important. Yes. Well, for those of you uh, that might remember Granville Street in the, uh, you know, 80s and early 90s, you know, there was a lot more strip bars on, on Granville Street. Uh, at the Austin Flash One, you know, down where uh, the Ramada Hotel is now, and the Hotel California, and, of course, the penthouse, which has always been there, right around the corner. Um, but also Champagne Charlie's, Champagne Chucks, to the regulars that went there, which was in the bottom of what is now uh, the Belmont. Uh, used to be in the Babaloo's, uh, right below the Irish pub uh, there, uh, Doolin's. Downstairs, there was a strip bar, and it was an old, scuzzy-looking place. The carpets looked like something from 1965 that hadn't been cleaned since then. They were first installed, and it was a real shady-looking kind of place. I remember going down there once. And uh, it was kind of a so. Granville Street has gone through these periods where it's been quite rough and tumble, you know. Like it's and it's never exactly cooperated with what the city has always wanted to be. Unlike Commercial Drive, unlike Gastown, unlike these other areas of town, Granville Street has always had this sort of somewhat kind of rebellious thing. Even when they started, they brought in the Granville Mall and they stopped cars going through that you couldn't drive all the way through it and whatnot. That is all. That sort of affected the way the, the that strip went. Yeah, I remember 
putting out posters on Granville Street for gigs, and I was putting up some posters, and it was quite scary in some areas of Granville Street, believe it or not. Oh, I was scared because a guy walked up to me and he said, have you ever been kicked really hard in the ass? And I didn't really know what to say because yeah. if I said yes, I'd go, we'll do it again. And if, he, if I said no, he would say, okay, well, let's have you get hit for the first time. So I didn't say anything, kind of the game yeah, slid yeah. it off again, but it, it was sort of intense. It, it, it was, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a hint of that left maybe further up, closer to Drake, even those places with the, with the you know, maybe the porn shop there and the old pawn shop places that had been there. But even those are going now as, as retail comes in and it's getting a little sort of higher end. You know, the, the smugglers have that Vancouver, B.C. song. And they name check uh, Granville Street, I think buying drugs or bu- on Granville Street. And that would seem weird now to think of like, really? You could do, you know, like it's kind of, uh, it doesn't seem the immediate first part of town where you think of it. I guess hey, maybe you think of Hastings Street first or something like this. But anyway. Uh, that that sort of doesn't ring true, but that's an, that's a throwback to that time where uh, Granville Street used to be a little bit more rough and tumble, like that, as they say. And there were spotters on the Pentos Cabaret looking for cops, and there were spotters in the Commodore too. I love that the stairway was so big you could ring a buzzer, and then a band would play "Roll Out the Barrel." Well, that's just it. The, the, the Commodore didn't get a liquor license until uh, 1969, 1970, when Drew took over. So in the years prior to that, all going all the way back to 1930. In fact, there were very few liquor licenses in uh, British Columbia because there there were Play, there were restaurant licenses only. They didn't. They didn't have liquor. There was. There was no liquor licenses. You had to go to a beer hall uh, if you wanted. To drink. There were no cocktail lounges or anything like that until, uh, you know, the later fifties. The cave had an early license. They were lucky that way, but most places didn't. They, so you had to sneak in your own booze. So what would happen is, is the Vancouver Police Department would send out these dry squad raids to raid the nightclubs, and they'd come in and shine flashlights around the tables and check for alcohol. So you'd be sitting around with your friends, and the police would come in and say, "You got any alcohol here?" Like ridiculous. Now it's hard to imagine. In, in the nightclub culture we have there, even going out to restaurants, that the police would come in and check and see if you have booze. Uh, so the penthouse, you're exactly right, the penthouse had spotters up on the roof because you could see three or four police cars heading down Seymour Street quite easily uh, from the top of the penthouse. And, of course, the Commodore stairs were long enough that if the police came in, the doorman hit a buzzer that was then upstairs, rang to signal the band, and then the doorman upstairs was to signal, signal the band, and they would play Roll Out the Barrel. Uh, to uh, and you and put it, your booze under a table or you pour it into the teapot, into the teapot or something like that, and, and then hide it. And then if you saw if there was a bottle down there that that was half full, uh, you, you know, you, then the police said, "Is that your bottle, sir?" You'd say, "I've never seen that before in my life." Liquor lust in the law, but you are Aaron Chapman as well. You was Aaron Chapman as well yes. with the book Live at the Commodore, live here on the Nardwuar Human Service Radio Show, a brand new book all about the history of the Commodore Ballroom and liquor lust in the law, specifically liquor at the Commodore Ballroom, but. Cherry, Buck Cherry from the Modernettes. Yes. People have spotted him over the years walking around the Commodore in the olden days yeah. with like a bottle of wine. It's like walking <laughs> with a bottle of wine because they sold bottles at the bar. How could you get away with that? What was it like drinking at the Commodore in the 90s or 80s? Could you carry around a whole bottle of wine? Well, I think uh, I think uh, John, uh, a.k.a. Buck Cherry there, uh, could do... Uh, he could do pretty much whatever he wanted there for, for a little bit there. That, uh, and it probably went with his image uh, a little bit back then. But it's important to remember with drinking at the Commodore then, and you might remember this too, uh, Nard, going back in the, in the early 90s there or 80s, uh, there was that system where you had to buy the drink tickets in one lineup, and then you went to the bar to 
actually get your alcohol. It was sort of a weird system there. And everybody sort of talked about how, uh, you know, they couldn't make sense of that system. And there were certainly a lot of, there was abuse of that system where, you know, bartenders that were tip well simply gave the tickets back. So you're basically getting a free drink and they were getting paid. Uh, or, you know, and, and uh, talk of whether certain uh, criminal elements were coming in after hours to... Uh, perhaps launder money through that drink ticket system because it was so loose and the accounting was so loose. Uh, I get into the book and the finer details of that and talk to some of the old bar management staff uh, and ask them, uh, uh, the tr you know, true or false on that. What did you learn about wine sales at all and about liquor sales? Like 15 bucks a bottle? Who holds the beer record? Do you know who holds the beer record for selling the most beer? I, th You know, I th that's... That's tough to say. I wouldn't. I wouldn't be the least bit surprised if it was some band like the Beat Farmers in one. You know, in one era. Um, in more recent years, uh, it's surprising to learn that Kid Rock uh, set a bar record there in, the, in maybe about four or five years ago, maybe five six years ago, uh, when he was through and, and just you know ev they almost sold every drop of alcohol in that place. I'm sure the streets of Aldergrove were quiet that night. Um, Boom. Yeah, but anyway, the point. You know, it was probably a great show. I shouldn't knock it, but 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 you know, it, it definitely brought in a crowd that was there to drink, and they it sure as hell did. For your book, I think it was hilarious. You only did two email interviews that I know of. You did two email interviews, one with Brian Adams, yes, and the other one. Jello Biafra. It's <laughs> yeah. funny if the two people doing email interviews for your book live at the Commodore <laughs> be here to Aaron Chapman, author of Live at the Commodore, Brian Adams and Jello. And Jello. How yes. is Jello and Brian Adams coming together there? Well, I, I was trying to. Uh, I, I had been speaking with Bruce Allen and his people about. I, I interviewed Bruce in the book, and, and I wanted to get some questions to Brian. And, of course, he's lived sort of overseas, so I couldn't... Uh, email was the... Which is understandable. Like, I think, yeah, it's understandable, it was, Brian. Uh, yeah. But Jello, it's funny, like, Jello is the other email guy. And, and, and Jello is sort of... I guess, I think Jello's anti, a bit anti-email, is he not? You know him better than I do. I think now he might have uh, a phone. Sort of, sort of embrace... So he gets his emails... Well, I, st I stayed at Jello's place when I was touring with No Means No, when I was uh, uh, doing merch and sort of doing a little tour managing with them. And in San Francisco, we stayed down at his place. And I made him laugh, uh, and he I think he sort of remembered me. And what I was actually, the joke? And I saved, I saved his cat uh, from escaping out the door. Mothra? Uh, yeah, I think it was the one after that, because Mothra lived, and then he, then he had the new one. Anyway, uh, but I but all credit goes to Annie Kidd here in Vancouver, who, who was down in San Francisco uh, visiting him at the time. And I, and I was trying to... Uh, I was trying to reach out to get a hold of him, just to, just a few basic questions of what he remembered about uh, the the Kennedys playing uh, playing the Commodore. So she was down there, so she kind of helped facilitate that. And we were gonna we were gonna do a phone interview, but then uh, he couldn't do it the time we scheduled. And I he he had already seen the questions. He sort of wanted to have an idea of what I was asking about, so he could be prepared. So he just it, through Annie kind of emailed uh, answers back to me that way. So. I love The Clash, but I always wondered about their management. Like, not them. I think they seem like nice guys. You talk about them playing soccer when they came to Vancouver. It's like, you know, great guys. But their management, yes. and this kind of confirmed what I read in your book about how their management demanded lights so big that BC Hydro had to come in and help out. Well, that's in like many... You wouldn't think a punk band yeah. would cause BC Hydro to come out? Yeah. Well, I mean, you know... People, that's pretty rock star. Yeah. Well, they were. They look like rock stars when they not first Not them, arrived. but their management. But, but that's in the book, too, because people say when they... When the clash got to town, they, you know, they weren't, they were sort of pretty looking like rock star. They, they were, they dressed the part uh, a, a bit, you know, they were, they were sort of, everybody got a good vibe off them, nice guys and, and sociable enough and whatnot, especially uh, Strummer and, and uh, uh, you know, whatnot. But you're, yeah, you're right. That there, there was that, uh, there was that element of it too. But I, it was really actually maybe the fault of the Commodore because you have to remember this is, 
1979, they didn't have the production they have there today and how big it is with, you know, with video and lights and all this stuff. They, just, they only had a few lights there at the time. It was so basic to put on a show. And the, and the Clash wanted to sort of arrive, I guess, in, in North America with a little bit of guns blazing. And uh, they, they had a, these amount of lights, so they didn't have the power to run those lights at the common and they had to call a bc power truck to come in and do a new tap like a power tap i don't know how much that would cost. And that was today. a favor wasn't it and drew the owner it was basically yeah you know and and i and, and there was some calls between you know norman and, and uh, perry and the periscope guys and drew would trying to arrange this uh, to get that kind of same day service uh, you know like anybody who works in concert production today would know how much that would cost and we have an amazing artifact from that night to play right now. Oh, yeah, we sure do. The Dish Rags doing London's Burning. And this is recorded at the Commodore Barroom when the Dish Rags opened up for the Clash and then encored with a Clash song. Yes, and there was the, the, uh, the Dish Rags uh, gals asked the Clash if they could do the song. And uh, when the, uh, they, did, they ended up doing it as the, as you're right, as the, as the encore, when the Clash came on stage... They did London's Burning. They said, this is a song by the Dish Rags. Baboom. And we also have something I'm going to play, a little snippet as well of Dick Dale oh, playing wow. live at the Commodore from 1993, courtesy the Rob Frith oh, excellent. Records excellent. archives. Rob was instrumental in, getting, in putting, helping me put the book together. I, got, I, got, I can't thank him enough. So a little bit of Dick Dale after the Dish Rags. So here's the Dish Rags live at the Commodore Ballroom in celebration of live at... The Commodore by J Aaron Chalmers. <laughs> That's right. This is from January 31st, 1979. On the Nerd the Human Serviette Radio Show. Oh, no, 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 no,
Nein. I'm already looking forward to coming back. The album uh, Tribal Thunder was, was written, unfortunately we didn't put the reasons why it was written on the, the CD. I asked the record company to do it, but unfortunately it had already gone out and uh, it's, it's basically logical. And uh, a CD written about the people. One of the songs that I felt very deeply about is a thing called Trail of Tears when I saw Dances with Wolves and how the, um, the children watched their parents die on the, the marches and when they pushed off, the uh, Indian was pushed off their land along with everything else that goes on in this world. So it was called Trail of Tears. I, I wrote this after watching my son, who was 17 months old. He's backstage. He's been, when he was 10 days old, he was at my first concert, so... And you're still listening to the Nardwar, the human serviette radio show with Aaron Chapman. That's, pa- that's pretty cool, that Dick Dale stuff, man. That's, author that's... of Live at the Commodore. And that was Dick Dale Live at the Commodore. Wow, that was cool. In 1993. Wow. And your book, Live at the Commodore, is all about Live at the Commodore. The history, of, the history of the legendary uh, historic Commodore Ballroom. And on page 102 of the book, oh, there's a go. picture of the Ramones. Oh, yeah. On page 102, it's a Bev Davies picture of the Ramones at UBC. This is the, oh, the, that's yeah. the Ramones at UBC. Are you sure? Not the Commodore Ballroom. I know that. But the but the uh, the pillar stuff at the back. That's the. We'll check the sub ballroom. We gotta go. We gotta. Yeah. We're gonna have to go look. I just thought I would mention that. Really? I think that's a picture of the Ramones well, at UBC. Well, now I gotta ball out Bev for giving me the wrong photo. Then I guess. No, I shouldn't say that. No, that's genius. That's yeah. so punk to be able to slip it in there. I could be wrong, really? but that is pretty. I'm pretty sure that is the Ramones at UBC. The reason I think that is it's because just, it's just right next to us. No, the sub ballroom. We're gonna go check this out afterwards. You're so. gonna put me on the spot. Yeah, to because, see if that's right. And then we're gonna go back on the air, and you're gonna retract that if, if you're wrong. But the reason <laughs> I think it might be the Ramones 
is at the sub ballroom is yeah. because for a while there the Commodore wasn't doing a lot of punk. I know they did early gigs the Ramones, but bands like Iggy and stuff would have to play the sub ballroom right. oh, because yeah. they couldn't be booked into the Commodore. They're, so even though they did punk early on, it took a while for it to catch on. It took a while to catch on even amongst uh, people here in town to get up and running in their own punk rock band. I mean, when in 1977 when the Ramones first played August 6th, uh, 1977 at the Commodore, um, the f- next punk show really wasn't, if you look at the show archives, you know, it's a lot of blues and sort of hard rock stuff until maybe about a, almost a year later with the Talking Heads coming through, which is, you know, a little bit obviously a different kind of punk rock. So it took a while for, you know, I think that the, the, the message went out. Everybody talks about on that first Ramones tour in 1977 that everybody who saw that show started their own band. You know, and it took a while for those people to get up and running with their with their those shows that you still you started to see, uh, punk shows and even local stuff. Th- there was a a battle of the bands with the Subhumans uh, and the Pointed Sticks and a bunch of you know sort of more soft rock acts that were uh, on that and that you know that you don't see that happen for another several months after that Ramon show. And before the Dick Dale, we had the Dishrags with London's Burning. The Dishrags. And I was curious, the dish rags featuring Jill Bain, Jill Bain. Yes. You interviewed 94-year-old Jean Bain. Correct. Is that related to the they, dish rags? They are, yeah, they are related, yeah. I believe that's her grandmother. That's incredible. Yeah. A dish rag cow. Uh, that connection is Chris Arnett. Uh, uh, it's a cousin. Um, and uh, so I, I, I had met Chris at the Galliano uh a literary festival last year, and got to talking, and I—that was the first time actually I'd met a big, uh, uh, you know, a big fan of his music uh, from the Fiat. So uh, and, uh, we, I was sort of, sort of working on it at the time, and then he said, "Well, you should talk to uh, mother and uh, and, and uh, you know some an extra sort of family members, and you know uh, his aunt, blah blah blah, you know, and who had gone there in the '40s, you know." So that's that's one thing that makes the sort of Commodore unique, especially in Vancouver, where we've we've done a very good job of bringing the new, but we haven't kept the old. The Commodore is one of those few places in town. Maybe the Orpheum, maybe the Penthouse are the only other two I can think of where your grandparents might have gone to, your parents might have gone to, and you could go to. Or just Tyler, before you are on Radio Zero, remember he was saying his relative was Dennis Mills. It was Dennis Mills, yeah. yeah or, or his uh, friend, uh, he knows Dennis Mills' daughter, Dennis from the Jasmanian Devils. And boy, the Jasmanian Devils played the book launch internet, and they were out of sight. They were they were fantastic, man. I mean, they they used to stalk the stages uh, uh, here in Vancouver in the in the 80s and 90s, and they've sort of been away for a little while, sort of haven't been playing much. But man, they're they're better than ever. If if you go see if they're doing shows and they only do sort of uh, shows on special occasions or every once in a while now. But uh, if you go, you got to go check them out, man. They're just they're just so good. And page ninety eight, you mention CITR and Jerry Barrett. Thank you for the shout out. CITR gets a shout out. You, you bet it does. Yeah. Also in the book, you're talking about Periscope and all the punk gigs they do, and their office in a Dominion building. Very yes. interesting. Still there. Still there. And then I turn the page, and it's a picture of Sammy Hagar. Yes. I love how you're like in the book. You're talking about punk and. In, the first thing is like Sammy Hagar. Well, that's that's uh, you know they they didn't they didn't play favorites you know like they you know when they're making that fledgling company that was a promoter company they sort of they took on everything um, you know and like like every most people I know their their record collections look like four or five different people own them and they have different they have all sorts of different uh, interests and whatnot. The the Sammy Hagar picture is in the book because that was the first uh, cheap thrills quote unquote concert night that they did at the Commodore, which brought in a bunch of bands, a series of bands over the next few, couple of years that were you know three dollar tickets, uh, two dollar tickets, four dollar tickets, all very cheap shows like that. The U two show uh, was a three dollar ninety nine cent ticket, I think. Um, so there was a bunch of different bands of all different kinds that came in on the. But they didn't have them. money to clean the bathtub. What was going on in the, in the bathtub? The filth in the bathtub. <laughs> in the backstage part of the Commodore, it's very different 
it looks very different than it does now for anybody who's been backstage there now. The, uh, the, now it's very nice, and there's sort of nice tile showers, there are heated floors and things like that. Back then, there were just a couple of grungy sort of rooms with some wood paneling and a couch, and there was a, there was a, a, shower, there was a shower back there in the later years, but bef- before that, there was a bathtub. And most, that bathtub mostly got used to throw anything in. It mostly got used for everything except having a bath. You know, if the, if the toilet was busy, if you needed to, people would use the bathtub. Let me put it that way. So when Patty Smith came to town, uh, she saw, you know, the, the bus sort of pulled in, and, and uh, she noticed the tub back there. So she asked the uh, promoter, uh, uh, the production manager that was on that day, Bud Wandry, uh, who has some great stories in the book, uh, you know, hey, I'm, you, can I get a couple towels? I'm just going to have a, a, a bath there. And, and he was like, ah, I, I don't know if that's, uh, you know, I, I don't know if that's a great idea. And she said, oh, no, it's okay. I'll, I'll clean up after I'm, I'm done. And he, he didn't, you know, she was, you know, hell-bent on having a, on having a shower or having a bath there. So uh, he let her do it. But uh, she, as the only one that I, in history, ever used that Commodore bathtub, as far as I know. You were Aaron Chapman, author of Live at the Commodore, a brand-new Christmas book. A Christmas book, sure. It makes a great Christmas gift, sure. Called Live at the Commodore and available where if people want to pick up the book? You can get it at almost any bookstore uh, in Vancouver. Black Bond Books has it. The Book Warehouse, all the chapters, locations in the Lower Mainland and B.C. I think would have it. Uh, 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 a couple record stores have it, like Neptune Records and Scrape Records. And I think uh, Red Cat Records will probably get it and Zulu will probably get it in the next uh, week or so or whatnot. And the book also is like a history of Vancouver. It's amazing, A.O. It's so detailed on Vancouver history. Like, secrets are revealed. The part- Parthenon, the Rifle Bird Sanctuary, the Lambeth Walk. Oh, the Lambeth Walk! One of my favorite, uh, one of my favorite stories. The, the Lambeth Walk. There's a, a a gentleman by the name of Giles Brandreth uh, in the UK who uh, did a little uh, history thing on the Lambeth Walk on the BBC One show. And Brandreth and I are, are in touch. Uh, he's uh, a colleague, a friend, and been very supportive uh, of, of my books. And uh, he t- I, the, the Lambeth Walk story comes a little bit from his research on it. But the Lambeth Walk was a dance that was done uh, when you, you know, like a waltz or a, uh, one of the foxtrot or one of these things that were done. And it was done for the first time in Vancouver uh, in the 30s. Um, and it later became a controversial uh, dance that the, uh, that the Nazis tried to suppress. The Parthenon, too, the connection between the Parthenon in West Vancouver and the Commodore. I never knew that. Well, the, uh, the, there was uh, Nick Kogus and Johnny Dilius, the two guys that ran the Commodore from in the very beginning years. Uh, the Rifle family had built it, of course, but the, the management of it, the day-to-day management of it, night-night management of it was, was Kogus and Dilius. Kogus was a very well-known member of the Greek community here in the 1930s. And uh, his history in the nightclub business goes back to the 1920s when he had a couple of cafes down on the Columbia Street and Hastings Street and uh, whatnot down there, down that way. So he got involved as the management of it, but uh, the Commodore made him a wealthy man, uh, even though he got into, fell into uh, tax problems and he was notably written up uh, for some tax evasion. Uh, but the, uh, he had a house in West Vancouver that had these sort of Parthenon-like columns and it was very often, a lot of people of a certain age in Vancouver would remember having their high school uh, graduation pictures or whatnot. Or they would go to that uh, location, they would, they would sort of take pictures there uh, of uh, whatnot. And the house was torn down by the, the next owner after uh, Kogus died. Tell us about Bloodstock. Bloodstock, oh man, well that's my, one of my you know, favorite nights in there. It was the first night I ever played the Commodore. That was January 25th, 1992. And this was 
the riff on uh, this was Budstock, Budstock three. The first Budstock had happened, and I guess it was eighty one, and then there was none in, in eighty two. And these were a, a couple of the most legendary shows that everybody remembers. There was the there was nobody that was a, a household name. In fact, anybody that would have been well known was playing in, in a different band under a different band name, and usually playing a different instrument that they were known for. This was the era of the quote unquote, if I can say it on the radio, fuck band, and uh, this was a sort of a, a very popular thing and something that Vancouver really was is was known for in those years for developing these things. So you know you'd have the guys uh, in the Pointed Sticks uh, and other bands, modern, it's all sort of playing in different bands and, and playing as I say. And a, ironically, a diff- those fuck bands they played in, one of them, Rude Norton, is one of the most collectible Vancouver punk seven inches of all. Sure, yeah, and and the real Mackenzies began as as Tartan that, Haggis. Yeah, as that out of, out of Target Haggis, but but that but the first real Mackenzie show we ever did was that night at at, at Budstock three, and that night there was a huge fight on the Commodore dance floor. I think between. There's still debate about who was involved and whatnot, but a bunch of guys that people presume were the old members of the Clark Park gang uh, started to fight down there. The bouncers backed off and didn't really get involved. There was some story that they knew who you know these guys were, and they just let them run uh, roughshod through the place. Uh, there were knives. It's kind of a crazy thing. But the Real McKenzie's played that, that night, and that was the first time I played there, uh, back in 1992 myself. That was the Commodore Ballroom. Have you been to the Casamia Ballroom, which is modeled after the Commodore Ballroom, which still exists? Yes, I have. In fact, uh, this, this past summer, the Vancouver Heritage Foundation did uh, a, a tour of, uh, sort of house history tour. And there were about 14 houses in the lower mainland that they spotlighted. There were a bunch of Strathcona. There was a bunch of different areas of town, I think a couple out in uh, the Kitsilano area, some very old homes. And one of them, I think the Jewel and the Crown of that series, they did that day where you could visit the homes. You could go inside and have a look for yourself, and there would be some representatives there sort of you know, guiding you through it whatnot, or, or answering your questions, was the Casamia house. And that was the house owned uh, by the Rifle family that's down there and still down there in South West Marine. It's a house that's even actually bigger than the Commodore itself. And in the basement of that home, they have a, their own ballroom, a little mini Commodore that's about, uh, you know, the size of a very large living room. And uh, it, it's, it's, it's quite amazing because um, uh, the floor is the same old floor that the Commodore used to have. You're, pro- you're like me, you probably remember that original floor they have, that even if you walked across it, it would have a little bit of a wiggle, a little bit of a bounce to it because it was a sprung dance floor. There was horse hair and tires underneath that Commodore dance floor up until when they had to repair it in 1995. Um, so it was quite quite remarkable that uh, the, the, right in their own home that these people had their own their own place, and they would invite a lot of their favorite jazz musicians back, uh, you know, for late night jams at the house uh, back there, back in the thirties and forties and fifties and whatnot. On page forty nine of Live at the Commodore, you say during Doug Gurley's ownership, he renovated the interior, putting in new carpets and drapes. So it took thirty years for new drapes. It took it took thirty years for new drapes. You know, the, the Commodore was an old chestnut uh, in many ways. Uh, you know, it, it was the place. It wasn't a place where you'd see touring acts and whatnot. A cave was was really the place where you went to see shows. Um, those, that's where the party was in many ways. There were certainly good times at the Commodore as well. I shouldn't uh, dismiss it, but there was a very different thing. The, the, the Commodore back in those years was more known as a place where you'd have an office party or you know a get to a club banquet or uh, a society function. Um, where you you know sort of dress up to the nines and there would be some classic music and dinner and a sort of almost a supper club in the way you, you sort of imagine that that term now. It was a very very different place than it is today. How much of the 1930s furniture lasted till Drew did the renovations and did House of Blues got everything? They. Like, is, is there anything left in the is. new Commodore from the way, way back when that we've been talking about? Yeah, exactly. There, there's, a few th- there's a few items. That basically, the, 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 uh, uh, 
what was your first question there? That is there anything left in terms of furniture for Drew? Like when Drew took over oh, the Drew, Commodore, yeah, yeah, everything was everything was there. Those like was were, the stuff around in nineties from the thirties? That's what well, I was you know, when when he when he his management of the cloner, of the Commodore ended in ninety six, uh, he sold a bunch of stuff off because he owned all that. Um, while he didn't own the building, he owned uh, you know the, the decorations in it. That's what he had purchased and the business that he had bought. So some of that stuff was sold off. There's people who uh, all over the city that probably in the back of their cupboard may have an old Commodore plate with the green writing on it that says Commodore Ballroom. I have a couple of them at home myself. Um, there's a few chairs, the old chairs with a little sort of French curve back on them that, that are still hanging out of the Commodore. They're quite brittle now because they're very, very old. So uh, while they had been reupholstered at one point, they're, you know, they sort of keep them in the back. There's one, uh, there's a famous chair in the production office of the Commodore that's sort of today and still gets used every night that is one of the old Commodore chairs. Uh, but when the uh, House of Blues uh, MCA Universal uh, co- company came in and uh, re- renovated the Commodore in 1999 and and, uh, and whatnot. It really the Commodore was sort of on a, it really needed a, 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 a polishing. It really needed fixing up because it was sort of falling apart. Um, while the floor had been rebuilt a few years earlier, the rest of the room needed uh, needed doing, and it needed to bring in sort of modern production to sort of pull off the shows that it does today and whatnot. You couldn't have run the Commodore, and, and you know Jim Burns and other people talk about you know they sort of not liking the new design. I remember when I walked in for the first time at the new Commodore in 1999, they had gotten rid of those old pillars with the bubbles in them, that, with the colored lights behind them, and I thought, oh man, they got rid of the pillars with the bubbles. They were pretty tacky. Blackie told me they used to leak all the time, so they should have got rid of them uh, much much earlier. But uh, you know they had to sort of fix up. The place and the and the funny thing is, in as much people say, oh, it's not like the old Commodore; it looks different. It actually, our our timeline in our minds isn't long enough because it looks more like the original Commodore doesn't did in 1930 than it than it you know it, it, the disco era and everything else that sort of had its way with the decorations of the Commodore by the time Drew was done with it. Uh, now it looks more like the way it actually really opened in the beginning. On March 8th, 1991, I did an interview with the Doughboys live on CITR because that night they were playing with the Screaming Trees, Nirvana, and the Wongs, yes. Thai Pigs Band, opening up. And I remember the Doughboys were mad that they had to open for Nirvana. <laughs> and now they probably tell their children that, you know, they, they did a show with Nirvana and, and, with, and say that with pride. I was curious, whose decision was it to have Kurt on the cover of your book? Oh, uh, the, uh, with the, there's a photo of him crowd surfing, uh, yeah, in the front. Uh, was front there any pressure there to have, you know, let's put Kurt Cobain on the cover? Not really. Uh, it, it was just, we had, we had actually, there's a... And how much does it cost to have Kurt Cobain on the cover? <laughs> what does it cost to get a Charles Peterson photo? Well, you know, I called Charles up. And I told him I'm working on a book about the history of the Commodore. And he was like, oh, that's cool. We always used to have a good time up there and, and whatnot. And told him a bit about the project. And uh, he was great. He, gave, he, uh, he sent us about sort of 10 photo samples that he had. Um, and that there's a, three or four others that appear in the book, aside from the one on the cover. And, uh, yeah, he was, he, was, he was very generous. He's one of the, he, I think he comes from a, a cool sort of punk tradition. So, I mean, had I been calling from Random House... In, in some book that, you know, uh, and for, with a huge budget, he probably would have charged what he charges galleries and some of the stuff that now he does because we were a little small Vancouver-based uh, publishing company and, and, you know, this is a sort of a, a, a somewhat of a DIY affair in, many, in, in, in its own ways. He recognized we were a small thing and, 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 and uh, gave us the photos on a, on a very uh, generous price, I think so. Food at the Commodore Ballroom. We're speaking to Aaron Chapman, author of Live at the Commodore, a brand new book all about the history, an amazing book about the history of the Commodore Ballroom, the UBC. Chicken burger. Oh man, 
the uh, this the, you're talking about the uh, uh, the the, <laughs> the, the, that, the night there was a night in the in the 40s I guess it was late 1940s when uh, a UBC um, engineers function uh, was having a party in there I think that that night and it was crashed by some members of the UBC agriculture faculty um, who snuck in some live chickens underneath their overcoats um, and they were going to crash the party by letting these chickens out on the dance floor. And um, uh, the woman, uh, um, uh, Dorian Christie, she's 80 uh, years old, lives up in West Vancouver, uh, tells the story uh, to me because she was working there tonight as a coat check girl. And they stuck in past the security guard, sort of ran past them and ran out of the dance floor and threw these chickens out. And it caused a big commotion and whatnot. Everybody was sort of shocked and laughing and like, where did, where did this come from? And, and, you know, these were expensive chickens used for scientific research, probably. And they were probably, they weren't just like farmyard chickens. It probably, you know, didn't cost anything. These were sort of bred chickens. I think these guys thought they'd be able to sort of get them, round them up the, after this joke and, and take them back to UBC. Um, what happened was, is as soon as the, the, the cooks in the, in the kitchen, uh, the commoner heard about it, they ran out with butcher knives and grabbed them and <laughs> took them back to the commoner kitchen and cut their heads off and, you know, started uh, uh, plucking the feathers. So, you know, I, 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 the chickens were, were not a, at school Monday morning, let's just say that. Baboom, did you try any food at the Commodore in the 90s? Uh, I'm sure I did, you know. I, they used to have that pizza station, you know, like off in the corner uh, uh, there um, and whatnot. The Commodore had sort of, for a long time, everybody, that's one, one thing that I, I, you know, people never really think of there's food there. There's a kitchen there, and, and actually the food now is really good. I, I think back then it was kind of like... You know, burgers and fries and that kind of things. Now it's actually uh, there's a there's a kitchen there now that uh, that's running all the time and for food for shows that uh, and people come down and have dinner and it, and it's it's good food. You know, the times I've, I've been there by myself. So what is a sellout at the Commodore and what was a sellout at the Commodore? Ah, uh, that's a good question. Well, it's always been nine ninety. That's the capacity of the Commodore. Now you know, there's probably times in Drew's years where there was maybe twelve hundred in there, maybe there was thirteen. Maybe there was 14. You hear a lot of people talk about the night they saw such and such band and there was 1,900 people there that night. I don't know if that's the case. There were definitely, you know, nights back then that was probably oversold and you, everybody was cheek to jowl in that room. But uh, uh, technically, it's, it's 1,000 people, basically, is there now. Is once, once guest list sometimes gets added up and whatnot, I guess maybe there's a little bit more than that. But, uh, you know, clubs got to operate in... Um, with uh, against these code regulations, I guess so they got to do it. So. On page one seventy four, you get to book the Roots show. The Roots show that oh, happened yeah. there. That show, I remember being like a hundred bucks. I think it was like the first show I saw. It was like a hundred dollars about ten years ago, maybe even fifteen years ago, whatever. What is the most expensive show that's been at the Commodore? Do you know? I, that was pretty expensive. I, that one. Yeah, yeah. The uh, the price of concert tickets, of course, that's one thing you can't help but observe in the book. You know that uh, famously in Vancouver when uh, Lena Horne played uh, the Cave. That was the first show that the ticket price was maybe. And that's 20%. how detailed you go back. Yeah, you talk about Lena Horne at the cave. Yeah, that's know. how detailed this book you goes know, back. Congratulations, Dale. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah, so that 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 was a, everyone that sort of you know jaws dropped. Like I'm not paying that much. That's unheard of. You know, and how much was, was that again for Lena Horne? And it was probably fifteen bucks or something like that. But you know, quite a bit of money back then. The hundred bucks of its day. You know, like it was the it was the Eagles ticket price. You know, and that was a big thing in the concert industry with it. The first hundred dollar ticket, I think, was that Hellfreeze is over. The Eagles thing they did way back when that, uh, you know, people were probably ashamed that they went to or paid that much money for it. Now, I'm not sure. I guess you're an Eagles fan, which I'm not. But anyway, the uh, you're right. Uh, th that was an expensive show. I think the, the, I think the priciest show might have been the Tom Waits show. 
because that was an expensive ticket. That was the first uh, show he had done in, in a small club show. He had done in years and years and years. So I, I remember he was up, uh, I guess it was 2004, I think it was. I was at that show, and I was at the Orpheum show that happened the other night that they did too. I think that and the Roger Daltrey show, solo show that he just did maybe three years ago, those were probably maybe the most expensive ticket price. Uh, Any number? Shows. Um, I, I I couldn't tell you offhand. I, I, I wouldn't. More I mean, than hundred. Probably yeah. We'd probably like one hundred twenty-five or something like that, or one hundred and fifty even, you know, or something. Uh, like that. Any bands you were surprised that have played the Commodore so much? To me, looking at your amazing website, because the website, the Commodore Barn website, you can check out all the gigs. I noticed that the Villains, great ska band, oh, yeah. played there nine times, and then they kind of turned into Skaboom. They played there thirty times, so like thirty-nine times the Villains and Skaboom together yeah. played there. Were they like Drew's favorite? That has to be one of Drew's favorites. Well, that was that was a great time for ska as well. That that period of uh, you know you know history that you know and uh, um, there's probably the the fifty four forty we think has the record with fifty one times now uh, playing the Commodore. Now that does not count. Uh, uh, probably Ole Olson and his Commodores playing there every night in the nineteen forties. They might have they might have played three five hundred times. Who knows? You know, like but of the showcase bands, that was it. It also doesn't count. Uh, what may, uh, another band which may even top, you know, fifty four forty for all the times they played there, which are the Carl uh, uh, Mentel and his Continentals, those bands that uh, and the yodeling contest and the Idlewise dancers that used to be there for the Oktoberfest shows because they did two weekends, uh, twice in October for years and years and years. That's that's technically four Commodore shows a year, and and very few bands do that. Maybe they do one a year or two, but very few do four a year. So the that those Oktoberfest shows were were huge shows, and you know people would come down and and, uh, and really you know the Chippendale Review, the Chippendale five Review. times they five, played the Commodore five times yeah could be more could be more I was shocked myself to find out that I had played tw- I had played the Commodore myself twenty five times that's Bet- incredible between uh, the Real McKenzies the Town Pants and Bocephus King uh, and one comedy show that I uh, I hosted uh, the Dave Attell uh, show that uh, I was on the bill for so. And she stole my beer. Played nineteen times. Huge. I mean, they were they played there so often back then in the early nineties. And I love the show list. You can access this on the web. We're speaking here to Aaron Chapman, author of the amazing book "Live at the Commodore: History of the Commodore Ballroom," like this from nineteen seventy four. Commodore Hoedown <laughs> with Slap Chord, featuring guests Old Style, Silver Spring, Brain Damage, and Hot <laughs> in nineteen seventy four. You know, you know, Brain Damage. Uh, uh, Chris Crud. In town, sound man to the stars. Uh, that's his father's band. Did you know that? N- name around though for yeah. years. I yeah. think they might have been associated with like the Cement City Cowboys. Cement City Cowboys. Those Danny bands. Mac. Danny Mac and those bands that used to play. He's at the Commodore. Yeah. How did you get your sources? Like for instance, all those great you know shots. The and, photos of the New York Dolls. Yeah. Right? And Dan, I I, uh, I I found on Facebook actually. The anniversary of that show was um, was just this uh, this year, and he posted some of those pictures um, and, a, and, a, and a post show. This was back in the time when you didn't have to get photos of the show. You could often just sit on the stage and take pictures or just bring your camera and start taking photographs. So that was the same one instance with the Kiss photos in 1970 there, uh, those photos that were taken by Kim Barnett, who now lives in Victoria. Um, so it, 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 doing a book of anything that's like the size, you're always doing a little bit of detective work, but sometimes, you know, you connect with people uh, via you know social media as, as well as going down to the city archives. Lois Klingbeil? Lois Klingbeil, another person. I, I, I had, when the book got announced that I was doing it earlier this year, um, Squire Barnes from Global did a spot 
uh, with me talking about the Commodore. We were down at the Commodore looking at old posters and this and that. And a lot of people saw that that night, and I had a, I had a wave. That was a great fishing line, actually, to put out there because I had a wave of people contact me to say, oh, I've got a Commodore story, I've got some photos, or I've got this uh, I want to share with you. So that was, that, was a, that was a great help. When you're researching stuff, looking through microfiche, when you print out microfiche, does it always have lines through it? I hate how, like, when you print, there's always a line through it. Can you not just get, like, the original paper and scan that? Somebody must have that. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, yeah, the I lines through microfiche? I know what you mean. The, the secret now is that you can, there's one machine at the Vancouver Public Library. I shouldn't tell this because this is a, this is a trade secret. There's one machine that you can go and you can take that, uh, that, those film microfiche and put it in a, and put it in a computer so you're not looking at the, scr- the sort of the translucent sort of uh, hand crank thing, and you can, you can make a copy of it right to uh, you know, your USB stick. And so you can get a very clean copy of it to reproduce at a very high res thing. So that's, there's, but there's only one machine. So if somebody's sitting at it, you sort of greet your teeth and somebody got to there before it and then you, you know, uh, whatnot. But, but you're right. Yeah. The, 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 in, insofar as the research goes, for me, one of my favorite uh, stories or one of the greatest things ever was uh, connecting again. I mentioned Rob uh, first from uh, Neptune, Neptune Records. When the Commodore closed in 1999, the workmen that started doing the renovation just saw some old boxes in Drew's office and just pitched them out, threw them out in a bin in the back. Uh, you know, and some binners came by, found the stuff, and then brought it up to Rob at Neptune, I guess, and said, do you want this stuff? I found it out back at the Commodore. He paid him five bucks here, ten bucks there, when they would bring the stuff up as it, as it got thrown out of the Commodore. And, uh, and he sat on it for another 15 years, basically. And when he heard that I was doing the book, he said, listen, I've got, I, when they closed the building, the, all these photos were getting thrown out. I have them. I don't know what they are. He didn't understand necessarily that they were old photos from the ni- late 1960s of the Fifth Day Club parties they had there and stuff like that that Drew had organized and photos of, uh, you know, with dates on them and, and whatnot. And I, and I could identify some of the people in the photos. Uh, so he just gave me all that information. And some of these photos, which have never been published before, uh, made it into the book. And, and, and it's uh, remarkable that, uh, that, that those were saved. Hendrix never played the Commodore. Is there any pre-1970 list of Commodore gigs? We're working on that now because uh, there's, we have evidence of, of when certain orchestras played there. Dal Richards, uh, George Kalangis, uh, Charlie Paulette, some of the old orchestra leaders from the 1930s all the way up into the 70s. But the dates, you know, the, you, would, you would go to the Commodore and you weren't necessarily going to see that band. You were going for sort of dinner and dancing. The band who, or who was playing was often... Sometimes immaterial. It was just the house band that was playing. Um, but around the start of late 1960s, then you start to see fifth man, a five-man cargo, and some of the uh, some of the club bands, sort of cover bands, Crosstown Bus, who uh, played with us at the did they were at the book launch the other night, their first time or, or back after 43 years, uh, they had played the Mitch Ryder uh, show, the first uh, rock and roll show at the Commodore in 1971, opening for Mitch Ryder. We had them back to play the other night with us uh, for the book launch party. Right now, I'm going to play something here by the Red Hot Chili Peppers. I can't believe I'm saying that. It's been a long time. <laughs> it's been a long time, Peppers. This is a live tape of the Red Hot Chili Peppers from 1989 recorded live at... The Commodore Ballroom. In celebration. That's how much we love the book here on an Art oh, Human man. Serviette radio show. Playing the Red Hot... Playing the Peppers. Playing the Red hey, Hot yes, Chili let's Peppers. Not, you know, but in the 80s, the Peppers uh, were, you know, those first couple of records are pretty, pretty solid, you know, like... So from eight... 1989 plus 100, 1989, <laughs> we have, this to take you back into the 80s, the feeling, this is a live tape from the soundboard of the Red Hot Chili Peppers to play a little bit on an Ardwar to Human Serviette radio show to help celebrate the book live at... The Commodore. With Aaron... Chapman.
You know what? I so did not want to play the Red Hot Chili Peppers. I ended up playing right there, uh um, Dick Dale again. So we're gonna go right back now to some Red Hot Chili Peppers. Anybody fucking dares clap after one of our songs, I'll fucking beat the fuck out of you. You make me sick, you fucking Canadians. You're still listening to the Nardwar, the human serviette radio show. We were just hearing the Red Hot Chili Peppers, weren't we, Aaron Chapman? We sure were. And they were late to the Commodore Ballroom. How did they relate to the Commodore Ballroom? Well, they played there, uh, I think, a couple of times. And right before the Red Hot Chili Peppers, we mentioned a gentleman who I think we have on the line right oh, now. Do we? Hello, are you there, caller? Yes, I'm here. Who are you? This is Rob Frith. I own Neptune Records in Vancouver. And Rob, what were we listening to? We were listening to some Dick Dale, some Red Hot Chili Peppers. Where did you get these tapes? How did it relate to the Commodore? And how do you know Aaron Chapman? (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, those are uh, bootlegs that came off the soundboard. A fellow I know worked at the Commodore and used to tape most shows, or at least shows that he liked right off the soundboard, and I got them from him. I traded him something for them. He made me promise I'd never give them to anyone, but I, I have them. And um, and uh, Aaron Chapman I know because he approached me to, he heard that I collect concert posters, and uh, he approached me to um, see if he could use some in his book. And there's an incredible amount of Rob's posters in the book, oh, isn't there? Amazing, amazing, amazing collection that he has. Yeah. It's almost Rob's poster book. <laughs> it could be, yeah. Because you've dreamed for having a poster book for years, Rob, and it's kind of a reality, isn't it? 
Yeah, well, I mean, there's so much more content than just the posters. I mean, Aaron's done an amazing job researching it, and uh, uh, I was just happy that I was able to find stuff that they he could use. And, and actually, Aaron, you know, discovered stuff I had that I actually didn't even really know I had. <laughs> yeah, that's, through my stuff. that's the holy grail. What was the holy grail? What was the holy grail that you had, Rob? Well, uh, for, for Aaron, the holy grail was these photos that I got... Um, from these dumpster divers that that were that were um, you know around town guys that bring secondhand stores stuff they get from dumpsters and find in alleys and stuff like that and these guys when they were remodeling the Commodore there was a bin out back where all the stuff was being dumped to take to the dump and guys I guess were going through during the day and grabbing stuff and this one guy just kept coming up with like sort of uh, you know as much as he could carry on his bicycle and then would come up with like bags of, you know, stuff from the Commodore, like these contracts and photos and all kinds of stuff. And, you know, even though I didn't know what some of the photos were, I thought they were pretty cool. And I, I hate throwing photos away because it might be important to someone else. <laughs> so I always like the idea of kind of hanging on to stuff and hopefully I'd find some someone that, that they related to. And what was the photo that you found or the initial photos that you found that excited you, Aaron? Well, you know, he, he, Rob, had, I, as, as he said... Of all the stuff. Of all the, the stuff. the Commodore Ballroom. Well, I mean... Drew's baby pictures. Th- yeah, I mean, there was stuff there of, uh, you know... What, when I, immediately when I saw it was, was one of the fifth, the fifth Day Club party. Uh, it was in 1966, 67, 68. It was Drew Burns was, Club. Which was a sort of a, yeah, a club The We sort of had this roving thing that went around. Dial a date. Yeah, almost, yeah. You know, these parties that he would hold for singles and whatnot. And, uh, you know, and I, when it said Fifth Day Club, and you could see the wall of the Commodore, and you could see the pillars at the Commodore that surround the dance floor. It was amazing to see these shots of the, uh, you know, the 1960s of the Commodore, of just people dancing and hanging out, and, and, and people of all, you know, races, and obviously in, in a real, you know, you can tell these were great shakers, you know, like uh, whatnot. So. And you even kept, Rob, on page 129, the Aiken Balls Blues Band poster. <laughs> uh, do you know anything about that, Aaron? I, I, it's, it, it's in there. Hey, yeah, like, Aaron, what made you choose the Aiking Balls Blues Band poster? Man, because they played there so much in the early 90s, and they were, uh, you know, they were a great sort of call, live sort of college rock band, you know, like at, at the time. But we, we didn't want to play sort of necessarily any favorites. If it was just the kind of music that that, uh, uh, that I liked uh, in, in that would get focused on, you would just see a lot of Clash and Pogues uh, stuff in the book, you know. So we, I, I, we really tried to do, get a mix of different things, and I wish I could have even done more, you know, like uh, to, all, all the uh, metal shows and, and Jazz Fest shows that have been there through. I had to only sort of just scrape by, you know, and, and uh, the book could have easily been 500 pages. The of the uh, Sammy Davis Jr., that early, early poster. Oh, yes, and that's provided from uh, Greg McDonald from Sloan. Uh, actually, because Pepper his Sands. Uh, and and Pepper Sands, yeah, because um, uh, his grandfather um, was George Kalangis, one of the old orchestra leaders there at the Commodore. So they had that in the family collection. And also, Rob, you have a connection to Bo Diddley twice, don't you? Have the Bo Diddley contract and a Bo Diddley appearance at Neptune. It, it, that's true. Yeah, actually, I, I've actually met him a, a couple of times. But yeah, they, they, there was a TV show being filmed in Vancouver called uh, So Weird. And uh, Bo Diddley was a guest on it, and he played a record, well, a second-hand store owner, and they rented my store uh, to, to film it there. And I uh, basically got to spend a, a whole day, like basically like nine or ten hours with Bo Diddley and just hang out with him between shots. And there wasn't a lot of shots of him, so I got to spend a lot of time with him. So it was kind of cool to find the contract 
And uh, I wish I could have uh, sent him a copy, but <laughs> fortunately he's not with us anymore. And Aaron Bo Diddley is a car mechanic? Yeah, well, one of the funnier stories in there is when uh, Riley O'Connor, who's now the president of Live Nation Canada, uh, out in Toronto, uh, who was one of the original Periscope guys helping to put on the shows, he went out to pick up Bo Diddley at the airport. Now, these guys were just sort of starting out. It's not like sending a limo out today for somebody or anything like that. He just went out in his, you know, his monkey shit brown uh, Plymouth or whatever it was that he was driving and went out there and, uh, and to pick him up. And the car wouldn't start when they were leaving. So Bo hopped out and sort of fiddled around with the engine and yelled to Riley, hey, fire it up, and the car, uh, the car started up, and they were, they were good to go. Rob, when you looked at the book, aside from the poster of your own, what other ones were you impressed by, by some of the photos and posters oh, in the book? Yeah. Well, some of the early stuff, the real early ones, the, uh, the early shows of things that I've never seen before, those were really, really great. And, and actually, um, I kind of I, I kind of turned Aaron onto the fellow that took the shots of the... Um, the uh, was it the New York Dolls? Oh yeah, Dan McNeil. Yes. Yeah. 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 Dan McNeil, who had who had the uh, New York Dolls uh, shots, and he just went uh, and and he doesn't even have the negatives anymore. He just has those faded sort of. Yeah, and that was a was a really great shot. I yeah. mean, just so early and. The show was pretty, and, and to hear the, the stories uh, about the show, you know, from people like uh, Buck Cherry who was there and seeing, you know, seeing the, the New York Dolls, even as, even if they were pretty ramshackle that night at that uh, at that tender age, no doubt had an effect on them. Oh yeah, those photos are just priceless. And Rob, for the posters that you gave for the book, because like again, you, every page here is like courtesy Neptune Records. Oh courtesy, God, yeah. It's, yeah, great. it's awesome. For the for posters that you gave, are those posters all collected one by one? Because those did not come from the dumpster, did they? So, sorry, uh, I, I'm getting like every third word here over this thing, so I, I missed that. Oh, I was just going to say the posters that are in the book, Rob, we're speaking to Rob from Neptune Records, who supplied a lot of stuff for this amazing book, Live at the Commodore by Aaron Chapman, who's live here in an Ardwar Human Survey radio show. And we'll reward you listeners for listening to the show if you keep listening. The posters you supplied, did you collect those one by one? Those did not come from the dumpster, did they? The no, they didn't come from the dumpster. In fact, I don't think I got any posters from the dumpster. I've just collected posters since I was a a kid basically in the 60s and um, just I was always into art so when I saw these like the psychedelic posters which really sort of got me into it um, I, I just I just fell in love with it and I, and I just started grabbing them when I saw them on poles and stuff in, in Burnaby where I grew up and uh, and just started collecting and uh, yeah no I mean I, I I've collected pretty much all the Commodore stuff uh, just along the way, and um, and uh, and of course everything else in between, all the different venues. So yeah, yeah, amazing, amazing collection of stuff. What's there left for Aaron to do now? Next, what's <laughs> the next book there, Rob? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, well, uh, yeah. I mean, Aaron should either do the cave or or all my posters. <laughs> yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> is, is there anything left to do, Rob? Is there anything left of Vancouver to do? Do you think a cave history would be good? I mean, because we've got the penthouse, we've got the Commodore. Well, maybe a, a book with, uh, you know, maybe 10 different venues or something and do a, a, a you know, an in-depth thing of, of each one. That's, uh, that's, I don't know. Aaron's yeah. probably got a better idea. He's the writer. <laughs> that's that's certainly, certainly been talked about uh, and whatnot. There's a couple of, a couple of irons in the fire I, I, I have for something next, but uh, I might do something completely different uh, 
as well. I did a, I did a piece in a book called Vancouver Confidential that came out earlier this year about what Vancouver was like in the Second World War that got into a little bit of uh, military history. So I might I may do something along uh, along those lines as a, a bit of something different. But the idea there's lots of you know the one the one thing is there's there's an amazing amount of books that have come out in the last couple of years that uh, spotlight Vancouver history and. Uh, you know, Vancouver Noir is is one of them. Daniel Francis's books, uh, the late Chuck Davis, his stuff, um, and a whole cadre of people from Michael Kluckner and John Atkin, the real sort of longtime heroes of the Vancouver history scene, to newer people like myself and Jesse Donaldson and Jason Vanderhill and uh, Eve Lazarus, a, a, a bunch of these people who are all putting out books. So it's a real, it's a sort of, I, I don't, I'm surprised no one said there's a liter- there hasn't been a literary movement of some of the stuff going on because some of the stuff sells very well in bookstores. There's a real appetite for it, and there's a tremendous amount of stories in Vancouver that no one's touched on yet. So there's lots, there's lots of material out there still to cover. Well, thanks for phoning in, Rob. Really appreciate it. Anything else you want to say about the book Live at the Commodore, Rob, at all, and about Aaron's book? It is, it is available at Neptune Records for sale. I, I, yeah, I we have it there for sale as well. But uh, it is a great book. Books. You know, I, I, I collect books. I have a lot of books, and uh, I, it's a wonderful read. There was all kinds of stuff I didn't know and things I'd forgotten about that uh, I was reminded when I when I went through it. And, uh, again, it's, you know, uh, there's other posters, not just mine in there, that, that were great to see as well, and photos. Like, there's great photographers of have really captured a lot of stuff all everywhere, but at the Commodore in particular. But it's, it's a great book, and... Um, um, yeah, I was happy to help contribute to it. Yeah, and I can't thank Rob enough for uh, for his generosity in in, uh, in uh, having not only and, and the presence of mind or just the the pack rat sensibility to hold on to all this stuff, which is half the uh, battle uh, and whatnot. And we're <laughs> going to end the show right now with the Pixies live from 1992 at the Commodore, Rob, from your collection. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's uh, again. There's a uh, it's it's great that the fellow I know. <laughs> taped all these things. I ended up uh, actually selling the Nirvana one live from the Commodore to Nirvana. Uh, I brokered it between the, the guy that taped it and and Nirvana. And I know so, the guy. Uh, I know the guy that I know the guy who Rob is uh, talking about too. And he has he has tons tons more of these uh, tapes and discs. He gave me the Pogues at the Commodore with Joe Strummer singing, which is a great it, it's a great record just to put on as a party album and whatnot. And, and, and it would be nice to uh, it'd be nice to see this stuff sort of see the light of day without anybody getting any trouble for it. <laughs> yeah, well, the thing is, they just haven't done the Nirvana one. They haven't actually put it out, even though I sold it to them. It was an unbelievable quality. Yeah, yeah, amazing. Well, thanks so much, Rob, and doot doot a loot do. Doot doot. And you're still listening to the Nardwater Human Service Radio Show. Thank you so much for coming in. Hey, thanks, A.O. Chapman. Great to see you again. Live at the Commodore. And to reward, thank you for coming in. And to reward the listeners. To reward listeners, you've brought a copy of the book to give away to a lucky caller. Yeah. 604-822-247. We'll take the second caller. 604-822-247. 604-UBC-CITR. And you win a free copy of the book live at the Commodore. You have to come down to CITR business office like 10 to 5, Monday to Friday to pick it up. So we'll put your name at the store of the CIT business office. You can win this book live at the Commodore. And if you don't win the book, what happens if you don't win the book? If, if you don't win the book, you can uh, get it at uh, all the bookstores in town, Black Bond Books, uh, Book Warehouse, Chapters, Pulp Fiction, and uh, record stores like uh, Neptune Records and whatnot uh, also have it. So uh, it's almost it's showing up everywhere. So just call down to your favorite store. And you're going to hook me up with Don Rickles? Oh, man, when he comes to town again, we got to go see him again. Because I've tried so hard to get hooked up with Don Rickles. I, see, I, I had see, no luck. I see him every time he comes to town, and I go back and and, uh, and we talk. now. And, and, he, and, and actually, I, I, he signed something for me last time, which I he saw me said... Uh, 
uh, what did it say? He signed it. Uh, Aaron, uh, next time I'm in town, let's hang out. Maybe. Dawn. Terrific. Ba-boom. Well, thank you again, Aaron Chapman, for coming out to another word of Human Service Radio Show. 604-8604-UBCCATR if you want to win a copy of Live. And here, courtesy Rob Frith and Chapman and a mysterious source, is an excerpt as much as we can of the Pixies Live or from 19... 19- 1992. Um, why should people care about the Commodore? Why should people care? Uh, you know, it's it's one of the great sort of uh, concert halls that is left in North America, and uh, um, it's it's largely recognized, certainly in town, as one of the best. Them, but even across Canada, there's really nothing like it, and maybe there's nothing like it either. Well, keep on rocking in the free world, and do 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 do. about the sunglasses, a little something I picked up. A head is in a bit away. A bit on fire. She's just looking for the perfect way. It's a brain.
across the space It'll be just like they say Woo, 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 yeah. Say inside 